Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 127. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we can't express what a delight it is to be able to gather together week after week and study your words with the goal of better equipping ourselves to be kingdom builders, to be partners with you in this this gospel enterprise of taking the good news around the world, here and abroad, near and far, sharing it with people that we um, meet, people that we work with, people that we live with, um, and people that we just might meet. Uh, help us, Lord, to be serious about this business, uh, knowing that it is a part of the reason why you've empowered us with your precious Holy Spirit uh, to be witnesses, to be ambassadors, to share the gospel, to share a word of encouragement. Uh, so we pray for holy boldness, and we pray for um, divine encounters. Uh, help us to meet the people that we're supposed to be meeting so that we can... Um, uh, uh, share our witness. Um, something Sometimes it's just an encouraging word. Other times it's a little bit more than that, actually getting to the point where we can uh, share the, um, maybe the, what, what people call the Romans road or, uh, the, uh, you know, the four spiritual laws or, or something that brings them to a moment of, of, of making a decision for Yeshua as Lord. Lord, what an awesome uh, 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 task that you've given to us, a, a great commission, as we like to call it. Continue to help us along as we study through the materials, through the notes, through the studies that I've put together as a Torah teacher. Um, I don't have all the answers, um, but I'm so thankful to be able to dialogue and interact with people on a weekly, daily, weekly basis uh, about the topics and uh, just bounce information off of them, uh, sometimes uh, correcting my own errors and other times just gaining um, uh, further insights that I can share with the students. And we all share together and we can glorify the Lord together as uh, one unified people, um, not uh, sharing the glory with our for ourselves. Continue to protect us uh, during these difficult times in America, particularly uh, with pandemics, with viruses, with with um, vaccines, with with politics, with uh, uh, ethnicity and race, and and. Um, just uh, even crazy weather. Yeah, Lord, uh, you are our, the Lord of your creation, 
and we don't suppose that you have just wandered off somewhere and and left us to fend for ourselves no that's not the case so we look to you we turn to you we trust in you and we will acknowledge you uh, for the many miracles that take place in our lives on a daily basis uh, continue to keep us healthy and keep us safe and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of yeshua amen Thanks again once uh, once more, uh, everyone, for joining me on these weekly endeavors. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and uh, you're watching my YouTube video right now of the live internet studies. I bring these studies to you week after week, um, and I'm delighted to do so. Uh, Lord willing, I'll just keep doing these until um, there's no resource to be able to do these anymore. But um, let me just briefly introduce myself. I'm a Torah teacher at a congregation in Thornton, Colorado called Kehilatunova, which is in English named The Harvest. As you can see on my screen right now, I've got our website pulled up at www.graftedin.com, and you're welcome to come and join us either online or you can join us live at our congregation. And if you're joining live, um, again, make sure you're following all the, the guidelines that we follow, the social distancing, the mask wearing, uh, the hand washing, all of those uh, safety guidelines. We are following those as well as we're monitoring this COVID situation. And if you're joining us online, uh, just be sure to go to the website and make use of the um, um YouTube videos that we upload. You can see on my screen right now, I've got a little picture of Pastor Mark uh, showing up and the recent sermons there uh, that are available. Uh, you can follow his uh, ongoing series right now. Um, that's a great way to connect to us and stay connected. In fact, I recommend you stay connected to your favorite um, congregation resource. If you're not attending and you're staying home, you're, you're practicing that type of um, social distancing, then make sure you're staying connected. There are lots of communities out there that are doing online streaming, and I'll highlight some of them again when I talk about my YouTube channel. Um, this is Tate's A Torah, and um, this is my own website. This is where I park all of my resources, along with um, my own congregational website. I park some there as well. If you were to scroll to the very top of the screen and look at teachings, like you see highlighted on my screen right now, um, uh, weekly Torah portions, those are mine, more teachings, those are mine, things like that. So um, my resources are available in many places, but my own home website is where I park most of my teachings. So you see all these links right in front of you right now? Those are my resources. And that's not the totality of them, but that's a, a representation, uh, some of the ones that I think you might be mostly interested in. So um, have a look around my own website. You can find me online at tetetorah.com. That's spelled T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. And um, uh, just uh, you're going to find most of my commentaries are either in written form. Uh, many of the commentaries are also uh, produced as uh, iTunes podcasts or audio files, and then many of them these days are being turned into YouTube videos, which um, you can uh, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel and things like that, and we'll talk about that in a bit. In fact, let's talk about it right now. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel uh, at uh, youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsu Torah Ministries. And um, you can find me online. And um, I recommend that you uh, have a look around again. Uh, uh, go to uh, my YouTube channel and make sure that you're uh, availing yourself of all the resources there. Uh, if you take a look, you'll see there are, in fact, I'm playing a video right now. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, in fact, you'll see that there's a, um, a, a, a tab called videos. Click on that. That allows you to see the videos in the order uh, 
the latest video uh, to the least latest, latest to the oldest, so newest videos are in the upper uh, left corner there. And um, um, you can see we're doing the uh, uh, live internet studies and my uh, highlights, my Torah commentaries, and then the uh, the uh, Shema uh, Trinity studies that we've been doing. Those are all popular. Uh, those are things I'm working on currently right now. But um, take a look around. As I always mention, four things. Number one, uh, subscribe to my channel. That put you in the family and makes you uh, aware of the things that I'm doing, which is closely related to number two, hit the um, uh, notification bell to make sure that lets you know when I'm uploading new content. Number three, give it a thumbs up if you like the content. And number four, uh, share my content with other people. Uh, use your social media link contacts and, and share my content with other people. That would be great. And then um, lastly, let me just go through the brief uh, announcements for the Live Internet Studies. As I mentioned, I'm on the different page, Live Internet Studies page on my website. Uh, logistically, uh, let me just read some of these for you real quick. This is episode number 127, as I mentioned earlier. The recording date for this video, uh, even though you're going to watch it maybe a week later, is uh, February 6th, 20. 21 USA date for those of you on that side of the world. Uh, we meet every Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So set your time zone wherever you're at in the world against the USA Central Time Zone and you'll be able to meet with us. We have two segments for the hour-long study. First segment, uh, 30 minutes given over to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my, we're in part 45 tonight. Segment two is given over uh, to Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 62 tonight. And then we'll be watching a featured YouTube video on the passage out of Romans 8, 28 through 30, entitled The Promises of God. And if you watched last week's video, it was also entitled The Promises of God, taken from the uh, a passage out of the Tanakh. So this is a kind of a follow-up uh, topic to that video that we watched last week. Okay? And uh, as always, if you'd like to join us, uh, which I'd love to have you join us, you're going to need to get Skype somehow, get access to it somehow. Um, but most importantly, you're going to need the group link, uh, which will allow you to connect to the live Skype class like the students who are joining me right now live. If you'd like to get the group Skype link, what do I say you always have to do? Go to my website, teitetora.com. Scroll all the way to the very bottom, to that black footer section. Look at the little icon that looks like an envelope. You see the little arrow pointing to it right now that says email button. Send me an email. I'll send you the Skype link and you can join us. Um, and that's the easiest way to connect to us. And then, as always, um, if you are interested in helping to keep me supported during these difficult times for me while I'm unemployed and looking for work, um, click the little yellow donate button and that's a secure way to send me funding. And as I always say, uh, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others, namely me. <laughs> Alrighty. Okay, without further ado, let's turn to. Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food, oh my, we've got a lot of reading to do. I, this week, have been um, updating this commentary. I've added easily six or seven more pages to the commentary, but most of them are uh, at the beginning of the commentary. So let me scroll down into the commentary and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, something else I did was I finally made the uh, the uh, PDF version available for viewing and downloading. So if you'd like to download that and print it offline, I think it's like 30-something pages, if I can't remember right now. Um, 
uh, that's available there. So go to my website at tatesitor.com, and from the very top, if you look right there, that's the Romans 14 Unplugged Commentary. So you click on that, you're brought to this page, and let's take a look at some of the updates. And so I'm going to be reading a lot of these. What I did is I added a section at the very beginning. You can see I updated this. Just the date says actually the date that we're um, doing this recording because I updated it earlier today. Or, or yeah, this is for those of you in live study. This is like nighttime right now in your time of the world. So this would have been earlier this morning when I was working on this when I put the final finishing touches. Um, I added a section called Introduction, Background, and Historical Audience that I'm going to read tonight, and it's a lengthy read. As I mentioned, I'm going to be reading a lot of this. And then um, we're going to uh, uh, turn, after reading through uh, some of this, we're going to turn and finish probably tonight uh, reading through Mark um, Nanos's book on the um, mystery of, of Romans uh, that we've been looking at. We'll probably finish this excerpt tonight. And then if we've got time, one of my um, current uh, Skype students sent me an email this week on a topic that, um, oddly enough, I was actually already researching and preparing to be used for this study. And it's on the kingdom of God slash heaven. And so um, I've got a resource um, that I want to look at tonight by uh, Tim Haig, one of my favorite uh, teachers, on this particular topic about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that we'll look at if we've got time. If we don't hit it that tonight, or if we don't finish it tonight, then we'll start it at least tonight and we'll finish it next week. Um, also, I've got a resource from um, Dr. David Stern, his Jewish New Testament commentary, that I'll read that dovetails uh, what we're looking at in the Romans 14 study about the background and the intended audience and some important information that'll help uh, us uh, appreciate uh, what Paul is dealing with in the first century. So let's jump right into this particular reading. Like I said, I'm just going to read a lot through this. Most of it's self-explanatory. A lot of quotes um, from some people you've already heard from, of course, historian Mark uh, Nanos, uh, Tim Haggs in there, um, uh, uh, Craig Keener, um, some other resources and things like that. So let's just jump right in, jump right into it. This is actually going to let me just pause real quick and set uh, set this up for you. Bear with me. Give me sixty seconds. Uh, since I've been dialoguing with and interacting with a lot of students over this particular issue on Romans 14 and understanding the background and appreciating the historical audience that Paul's writing to, and since most of you are already aware of the kind of the worldview that I subscribe to, kind of the ideological aspect of Paul was not abandoning Torah and teaching a law-free gospel, much like the historic Christian church has supposed that he did, then what I like to do is I like I'm I'm instantly alerted to research or historical data that puts Paul back into a Jewish world setting of the first century that um um allows him to write to groups that were still from Paul's perspective a sect of one of the varied Judaisms of his day. In other words, Christianity was not the Christianity as we know it today didn't exist in Paul's day. There was no religion known as Christianity like we know it today. Although the name, you know, uh, um, Christian was being used and starting to being used in the, in the early first century, second century, third century, whatnot. Uh, we find that what shows up three times in Apostolic Scripture, something like that, that term Christian. So I'm not 
um, saying that that's not what was going on. But sometimes when we read that term Christian, we automatically think, oh yeah, these are these are Gentile Christian groups who are completely separated from their Jewish uh, counterparts. You know, there's you know church and synagogue were separate by this time. I think that's a wrong-headed way to approach the apostolic scriptures and particularly Paul's writings. So that's what I'm trying to um, present to us. I could be wrong, but most um, biblical uh, uh, Biblical uh, uh, um, researchers and authors and historians and writers are coming to grips with the idea that mm, Paul's Christianities weren't as separated from the from Paul's Judaism as we might like to have thought in the past, and so that's the ideology or the the, the worldview or the perspective that I'm working from. Um, I know it has some problems when we work with that view, and it's not like it's not like I say it's not an airtight perspective, but I think it provides a better background for us to appreciate, um, especially the way Paul writes, the issues he's addressing, and it gives us an appreciation for how we can better equip ourselves to reach out to the Jewish community of today who still is the beloved of God, as we'll find out tonight. So let's look at this. Um, like I said, I think this is self-explanatory. Um, um, so pardon me for getting so... Some of it will be a little bit technical, particularly historically, but if you're a historian buff, then uh, this will be right up your alley. All right, so let me just read this for you. I think this is big enough uh, font for me to read and for you to read. So let's just start uh, right here. Introduction, background, and historical audience. Allow me to begin this brief commentary to Romans chapter 14 by quickly surveying the background to the letter as a whole. A few quotations from selected, from select biblical authors will suffice for our interest. Esteemed biblical scholar Dr. Craig S. Keener writes, and let's uh, start with Dr. Keener. He has a section in his book um, that I'll show you the, uh, the, the, the maybe I'll show you the footnote. Some of the footnotes we need to look at, others we don't, we don't need to bother with, but um, Maybe I'll let you know later on where all these footnotes came from. He's got a section entitled Paul, Judaism, and the Law that caught my attention when I was researching it this week. Uh, Dr. Keener writes, quote, When we speak of Paul and Judaism, we're usually thinking in anachronistic terms, that is to say, out of place and time. We take something that's modern or current and we project it into the past in our mind as if it was um, present in that day, you know, like as if we just, as if we were saying, um, Paul, when Paul wanted to uh, look through his Old Testament, he went to the, 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 the bookstore and picked up a copy of the Old Testament and turned to page, you know, five. Okay, that that's all anachronistic terminology. There was no bookstore that carried a book called the Old Testament, and it certainly wasn't put together in pages like we would say to turn to page five. Okay, so that's what I mean, like just anachronistic. Okay. Let's continue. Paul, like most of the earliest Christian movement, even in the diaspora, right, Jews who were outside of Israel, was Jewish. That's nothing new to most Christian authors. Modern Western readers distinguish Judaism and Christianity as distinct religions, but the Christian movement, as it came to be called, viewed itself as carrying on the biblical faith of patriarch, patriarch, uh, patriarchs and prophets in view of end-time fulfillment in Christ, demonstrated by the eschatological gift of the Spirit. And we've talked about this in the past. Um, this is not extremely earth-shattering news that um, Paul was operating within a, a Jewish worldview 
And Judaism and Christianity are more closely related earlier on than we sometimes give credit for. So uh, that's just something I wanted to, to highlight again. Uh, Dr. Keener continues, As scholars today emphasize, first century Judaism was itself highly diverse. Some even speak of Judaisms, like I do as well, though emphasizing the wide variation in Jewish practice should make the point sufficiently. Its rabbinic form, which evolved into traditional Orthodox Judaism as we know it today, evolved from Pharisaism, but that evolution postdates Paul's ministry. Many of us also know it as well. Pharisaic Judaism turned into rabbinic Judaism, but from Paul's perspective, there was no such thing as rabbinic Judaism. Again, that would be anachronistic if we were to read later rabbinic Judaism back into Paul's day. So just good practice. Um, historical hermeneutics, when we're reading through our Bible, go a long way towards helping us not just to properly interpret what we're reading, but to appreciate how we can make the leap from 1st century to 21st century when we're seeking to make some form of application. All right, let's continue. Paul's faith is, in a sense, an earlier development of Pharisaism, albeit a minority one, than Rabbinic Judaism is, as some Jewish scholars have recently pointed out. Jews as a people affirmed circumcision, the temple, the Torah, and other traits, many of these like distinctive food customs, highlighted over the previous two centuries as costly marks of distinctive Jewish identity. Yet some more often in the Holy Land expected the imminent end of the age, whereas others denied it, right? We already know how sentiments in Judaism in Paul's day towards um, messianic expectation uh, was very high in some areas, higher than some areas in others, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls communities, the Essenes. They had this really high messianic uh, expectation versus maybe in other places it was not as high. Uh, Dr. Kenya continues, the degree of Jewish diaspora assimilation to the surrounding culture varied from one place to another and according to the attitude of their host cultures. Views about messianic figures vary more widely than we have space to narrate here. Paul has been compared to apocalyptic, mystic, and Pharisee extremes of Judaism, among others. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, if I click on my footnote, the, the resource is from uh, Craig S. Keener, Romans, a new comment. Covenant Commentary, a Letterworth Press, and I'm using the EPUB edition for that particular resource. Okay, let's continue in my uh, own notes here. In similar fashion, Messianic author Tim Haig adds these historically important insights. And you guys know I'm a big fan of Tim Haig. He doesn't have everything uh, right, but he's got a lot right. And you know, when you go to a, use this, this analogy, when you find a well that's got a lot of good water and... Um, it's easily accessible, then you're going to go to that well quite often. Or use a restaurant analogy, if you find a place to eat that has a lot of good food and the price is great, the location is prime, uh, you're going to keep going to that restaurant often. Well, Tim Higgs liked that well or liked that restaurant, right? I turned to him over and over again because he's got such a wealth of knowledge. And from someone who's speaking uh, as a Messian Jew, such as myself, he and I resonate. So that's why I use his uh, uh, notes quite often. He adds these uh, notes for us. Recipients, speaking about uh, who Paul was writing to in the book of Romans. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, as, in we, as we read in Romans 1.7. But who were these addressed as beloved, right? Remember, Paul uses this phrase, beloved. Did Paul write to a group of believers who viewed themselves as a synagogue within the larger community of first century Judaisms? Or did he write to a congregation who considered themselves a break away from the synagogue? Understand the challenge we have right up front? Again, it's no secret that your average garden variety 
uh, Gentile Christian resource, whether it be from the pulpit or from the Bible bookstore or from the seminary, is going to typically reflect Paul's making a break from the synagogue and Jewish communities of his day in order to form new communities known as uh, Christianity with their own separate and distinct lifestyles and laws and halakha and group policies and uh, the way they view um, um, the, the law of Moses and things like that. So let's let him, uh, Tim Haig, continue to describe this for us. Um, I think you guys already know that I don't subscribe to that particular perspective on Paul. Uh, we may first question how we should understand the word church, right, which is the Greek word um, ekklesia. In the epistle of Romans, and you want to make sure you look at uh, where Paul uses this word, quite somewhat sparingly compared to all the other uh, the books as a, of the, the writings as a whole, uh, this phrase ekklesia shows up in 16.1 and 4 and 16 and 23. But he does use the word. It's just he uses it at the very end of his letter. The word ekklesia did not take on a technical meaning until much later. In the pre-destruction area, uh, ecclesia simply was a convenient word to describe any group that formed around common identity and purpose, right? Whether they were Jewish or Gentile really didn't matter. The Greek term applied either way. Thus, in Acts 19.32, the angry mob that gathers at the theater to lynch Paul is called an ecclesia by Luke, right? You might think an angry lynch mob, right? Why would they be called an ecclesia? Because it's kind of an all-purpose word. It didn't take on the specificity of, of referring to the church, which is how we translate it in many uh, English versions, till later on in our mind. So that's kind of an, a bit of an anachronism that's thrown back into your Bible translation. If the Greek says ecclesia, but your translation says church, then um, that's a little bit of an anachronism going on right there. This particular rendering by Luke, showing that the word carried no special meaning at this early stage, is what we're highlighting right now. When the followers of Yeshua, known as the people of the way, right, recall that this is a sect of Judaism, the way, when they are called ecclesia, this doesn't mean that they're the church. This simply marks them as a group identified by common beliefs and religious practices. Later on, we understand that this is the church. And again, that word church is sometimes loaded with a lot of um, modern baggage that separates it from any Jewish um, familiarity uh, that should have been present in Paul's day. But unfortunately, again, we divorce it from its meaning in today's practices, something we need to move away from. Not entirely. Again, it's okay to think of the... Well, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just read Hig. Likewise, the word synagogue, which is the Greek word uh, synagogue, was another Greek term defining an assembly of gathering or people. So notice we've got two words. we get ekklesia and we got synagogue. In the first century, a, a synagogue was used to define a group of people more than a building. The place where a synagogue met was called a um, prosuke. And we've talked about this before, the prosuke, the house of prayer, is somewhat synonymous with synagogue, but later on it also became somewhat synonymous with um, uh, ecclesia. And again, these technical terms are are going to go a long way towards giving us an appreciation for the language that Paul used when he's writing and how it would have impacted them first how they would have interacted with the terminology versus today we read, you know, in the Greek, we read synagogue, we read house of prayer, we read um, ecclesia, and we start thinking church, synagogue, you know, separate locations. In Paul's day, maybe not so much so. Hey, continues, there's every reason to think then that Paul was writing to a synagogue community in Rome that saw themselves as within the larger community of Judaism. Let me read that again. 
There is every reason to think then that Paul was writing to a synagogue community in Rome that saw themselves as within the larger community of Judaism. The way was considered both by those inside, right, the believers, and those without, right, the unbelievers, as a sect of Judaism. This has now become somewhat standard um, uh, historical and religious practice to think of Paul this way, so it's not shouldn't be so radical when I write something like this. And we shouldn't push back against it so much as Gentile Christians, as if there's some threat to our own Christian identity as Gentiles that, that Paul's writing to a group of people that he considered as a sect of Judaism. Don't think that way. This is not a zero-sum game that we're referring to. There's no reason to think that the congregations in Rome to which Paul wrote was anything but a synagogue community. So again, that's a very radical way for some people to think, nah, he's writing to church groups. Remember what I keep talking about, how that brothers and brethren, the Greek word Adelphos, um, does refer to believers. But in the broader context of the way Paul's writing, he's talking to small church groups that are scattered in and amongst other smaller synagogue groups or larger synagogue groups that were already connected to a vibrant Jewish community that was all working together. Although they had their differences, obviously Jesus is going to divide them in many ways, but it's not going to stop them from continuing to um, uh, uh, have close contact with one another as they discuss these important issues. Let's continue. That research from Tim Haig, by the way, is taken from his, um, um, I think it's either his Roman study or his book of yeah, this is taken from his Epistle to the Romans, Volume 1 study that I uh, have here. All right, let's, so let's keep uh, reading here. Indeed, like Tim Haig just referenced, that the Christian church in Rome was likely very closely connected to existing Jewish synagogue communities, as opposed to operating completely independent of them like modern, Jewish, like modern Christianity teaches, is also expressed in the works of Mark Nanos, a modern, reform, non-Christian Jewish historian who specializes in New Testament studies, particularly those that involve the Apostle Paul. And again, as I mentioned earlier, when you find a resource that so closely matches the ideology or worldview that you're trying to express, then you kind of latch onto that resource and you continue to use them over and over again. Mark Nanos is one such resource. He's a Jewish writer. He's not Christian, but uh, and he even disagrees with Paul's final message about Jesus being the Messiah, and he'll openly admit that. But as an historian, he's trying to be faithful to accurately represent what Paul's teaching, so thus he writes about Paul. He's trying to understand Paul from Paul's perspective, and give Paul the benefit of the doubt of speaking about the things that Paul is writing about, such as uh, Yeshua and things like that. But from a historical perspective, sometimes, and history has proven this to, to, to be true, what I'm about to say, sometimes it takes someone from the other side of the tracks, the, the other people that we're talking about, to come forward and express how what we're talking about um, impacts them. So we got this kind of this social phenomenon when we're talking about social identity and things like that. Remember, I'm a, I'm a, um, a, a, a psychology major, so uh, indulge me for a moment. Um, uh, when we're talking about social identity theory and, and people groups and things like that, we have this phenomenon known as us versus them. And it's easy to describe us in favorable terms and them in less than favorable terms. And so them becomes kind of a foil, a, a straw man that we can pick on, even a kind of a faceless, nameless other uh, entity that we uh, bounce off of and, and uh, gain our identity as over and against that, that other identity. So in Christian terminology, we are the, we are the people, um, uh, we are the us, and the Jews are the them. 
And so it's common to think that Paul was writing to us rather than writing to them. But what Mark Nanos is bringing, uh, Nanos Nanos, you know what, I was listening to a few of his, watching a few of his videos this week, and sometimes he says Nanos and sometimes he says Nanos. I'm thinking, dude, do you even know how to say your own name? I'm just picking on him. So if I say Nanos and then I say Nanos, you know, everybody calls him Nanos and I've been calling him Nanos and, you know, what's the big deal? All right. So uh, Nanos, Nanos, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name. But I was watching him this week and um, it's very refreshing to find someone who's part of the them crowd who's stepping forward and saying, you know, I, I don't believe in Christianity. I don't believe the central message of Christianity that, that Jesus is Messiah. But to the degree that I can study Paul like any other historian, whether Christian or not, and come forward as a Jewish voice and let you know how we um, are uh, impacted by the way you talk about us in such a kind of a not-so-favorable light as Jews. Let me tell you how that rubs us as as Jews and how historically that's probably not the best way to, to uh, portray Paul, who didn't seem to have any problem with Judaism. So that's why uh, Mark Nanos is, uh, Nanos, Nanos is such a breath of fresh air. He's providing us with, sometimes, like I said, we need to hear what the other people think about what we are saying about them. Same thing happened with, like, you know, historically, like, you know, when we have uh, uh, minorities or, you know, women's movement comes along and says, hey, you know, this is how we feel about what you men are saying about us. You know, this is our voice. Listen to what we have to say. It's time for us men to kind of sit back and go, okay. We're listening. Tell us how you feel. You know, so that we, the church, we, the Gentile Christian church, kind of need to stop and say, okay, to the Judaisms of today, you know, because the, 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 the historic Jews don't have a voice anymore, but Jews of today can speak up and say, hey, listen, this is how we feel about the way you're talking about us when it comes to the us versus them discussions. And are we really that bad? <laughs> All right, so let's take a listen. Here's what um, uh, Dr. Nanos, uh, Nanos has to say. Again, I'm just going to keep throwing his name around different ways. Nanos, Nanos. <laughs> and we can just have some fun with it, okay? Until Dr. Nanos writes to me and says, hey, here's the way you say my name, right? Like uh, like uh, Dr. Tuggy wrote in to me. All right, so Romans 16 appears to indicate that there were already a number of small groups of Christ followers, although only one household gathering, Ecclesia, is specifically noted. Again, we referenced Romans uh, chapter 16. The total number of people addressed might have been as few as 50, based on Paul's greetings, to less than 30 specific individuals. Even if there were several hundred, whether spread throughout the city <clears throat> in small gatherings with some level of independence, as many suggest or not, they would easily fit within the larger yet still overall minority Jewish communities of Rome as subgroups. Again, this is going to feel like an ebook, so just listen up. Um, kind of like an audio book, because so, I need to do a lot of reading. They may have still been largely unnoticed and probably not well understood, speaking about the Christians in Paul's day. However, different they may have been, may have begun to be on some topics and some behavior. Their subgroup identity is suggested all the more if most or all of the members of the group confessing Christ were composed of the non-elite and thus likely dependent upon rather than independent of existing Jewish communal leadership organizational legitimacy, tradition, including adjudication of conflicts, meeting places, and access to other communal resources. We're going to see how this bears extremely um, important relevance later on when we're talking about how um, uh, independent were the Christian groups and groups in Paul's day. In other words, Nanos uh, continues, when we think about the churches, quote-unquote, of Rome, we can think in terms of similar to those of the synagogues, quote-unquote, of Rome as, quote, house churches, end quote, in keeping with house synagogues, end quote. And that's very important for us to um, contend with. Historically speaking, when Paul was writing in the mid-50s of his day, um, 
Even Rome, and we'll read about this later on, even Rome didn't really consider these subgroups as separated from the Judaisms in terms of not just organization and, and, and structure and uh, affiliations, but also in terms of having access to shared resources such as scriptures, right? This is going to become very important as we uh, look at this later on. And also protections and, um, uh, what do we say, uh, freedoms and um, exemptions that were extended from Rome to religious groups. Who got those exemptions, right? Who had to take the Pay the uh, the the, the um the what we call the Ju fiscus Judaicus and things like that. Um, how was the Pax Romana, the the, the Roman peace and the and the, the Jewish uh, temple taxes and things like that? How were these things levied against which groups who had exemptions as a as a collegia? What we say um, as groups that were recognized by Rome's and given exemptions to be able to meet together versus who was required by the state to submit to emperor worship and uh, uh, forced Roman, uh, the paganism. Let's let the uh, uh, nanos continue. That remains the case whether or not there were other more formal buildings in addition to such groups or subgroups meeting in spaces adapted as needed and whether they were refer referred to as synagogue or uh, prosuke since all of these terms were interchangeable until much later than uh, Paul's letter. And as I mentioned again, um, this is important for us historically because it's going to help us to appreciate that Paul's using terminology that when the readers read his letter, right, Phoebe probably would have been the one who was the attendant whose uh, historian's uh, figure probably read the letter to the rest of the group. When, when Phoebe read the letter, if she did, then she's using um, uh, 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 terminology and, and uh, nomenclature that was familiar to them and uh, evoked uh, um, ideologies or worldviews or concepts that they would have been familiar with, you know, synagogue, church group, uh, um, uh, you know, the Greek terminology, uh, sunogoge, prosuke, and, and um, ecclesia and things like that. Uh, but this still does not tell us much about the relationships between the Christ-following subgroups and the large Jewish communities of Rome. And that uh, reference uh, from uh, Mark Nanos was taken to uh, from a study, uh, uh, an essay that he's got published on his website entitled uh, To the Churches of the Synagogues of Rome. And it's available from his website at marknanos.com. And we'll continue to use this resource as we keep going. Let's uh, keep reading. It's my own words. Regarding the well-known fact that the Jews in Rome were handed an edict of expulsion by Claudius Caesar, likely in AD 49, a fact recorded for us by the ancient Roman historians um, Suetonius, or some people say Suetonius, Suetonius, uh, Cassius Dio, Paulus Orosius, and the apostolic scripture writer Luke, right, reference Acts 18, 1 and 2, which we're going to read here a little moment, uh, a little later. I felt it was necessary to include some admittedly lengthy resources concerning the impact this event likely had on the Jews in Rome and the effect it may have had on Paul's audience. Um, these are my own uh, research uh, comments, so let's listen up. Um, um, this is going to bear uh, relevance to uh, perhaps uh, the makeup of Paul's group, right? So we're going to talk the history for a bit about the uh, expulsion of Jews from Rome during that time. To be sure, according to my own personal research and experience with fellow Christians, depending on how one interprets the following background and historical information in this section, your interpretation and subsequent modern implementation of Paul's instructions in this chapter of Romans 14 and 15 to follow will either take on what Bible students like to term a pro-Torah aspect, or they will reflect its practical opposite, what some term a law-free gospel aspect. So you understand what I'm, what I'm setting up here? The way you interact with history at this point, when we're talking about the um, expulsion of the, the Jews from Rome, 
You're either going to come to a perspective of Romans that Paul's writing to a predominantly Gentile group who had broken free of any Jewish influences and was essentially operating independently of Jewish influences, right, because there were no Jews in Rome, or the way you interact with historical accounts of the expulsion are going to lead you to the conclusion that, yes, there was an expulsion, but it may not have been as big as we originally thought. Thus, there was a, still a sizable amount of Jewish um, uh, uh, people, right, Roman citizens in Paul's day, that would have given Paul the necessary um, impetus, uh, uh, or again, I keep using this phrase, ideology or worldview, ideological perspective from Paul to know that his intended audience uh, was still connected and dependent uh, in many ways upon Jewish support, Jewish community interaction, and uh, res Jewish resources. And this would have um, impacted the way that they uh, viewed uh, their Jewish counterparts. So let's read some of this account. Acts 18, 1 through 4 reads, and this is ESV. Uh, after this, Paul, um, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. I think I have a typo there. It says Paul. I think it should say Paul. But and he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Notice Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Right, speaking of Paul, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent, mark, tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. All right, so this is an account of Paul that we read about in the Book of Acts about. Um, Paul going to Corinth, and Priscilla and Aquila are there. But if you know already from reading the book of Romans, Priscilla and Aquila are in Romans, near the near in, in the end of Romans chapter 16. So presumably, they were first in Rome, and then the Jews were expelled, and Priscilla and Aquila being Messianic Jews, or Christ-believing Jews, would have been expelled along with them. We're going to read about that in a bit. And then, in a short while later, after the edict expired, then the Jews were allowed to return back to Rome, and Priscilla and Aquila presumably would have gone back into Rome as well. But in the in the interim time when they were when they were kicked out of Rome, apparently Priscilla and Aquila went to Corinth, and that's where Paul met them, and uh, or at least when he was imprisoned there, and. Um, uh, when he's writing the book of Romans uh, from prison, and, and he's going to be tried in Rome, and therefore he knows he's going to make his way to Rome sooner or later. So he's writing to uh, uh, he's writing to the Romans, the church in Rome, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila have already returned there, but Paul's still stuck in Corinth in prison. Uh, but eventually he's going to make his way to Rome, and we'll see how this is important for us. Historians are divided as to the importance of this tragic social event, right? I'm referring to the expulsion of the Jews, particularly as it how, how it bears relevance for understanding the audience to whom Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. After all, since the explosion was approximately five or so years prior to him writing the letter, recall that Emperor Claudius was murdered in AD 54, thus bringing his decree to an end and allowing the Jews to return to Rome in great numbers. And since Paul went on to actually visit Rome a short five years later, approximately AD 60, it is of no small fact that once he got to Rome, he met with non-Christian Jewish synagogue leaders to discuss his trial. So this, again, is history that's important to us. So let's turn to some of these details and see how it bears relevance. Um, We've got a quote now here from the book of Acts once again. Uh, Acts 28, 17. After three days, he gathered together the local leaders of the Jews. And when he gathered, and when they had gathered, he said to them, this is Paul talking, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So this is interesting. Paul is already in Rome now. 
and he's he after I mean he immediately eats with meets with some brother Christians. They even traveled a great a bit of a distance to meet with him, and he he, he they were comforted and you know prayed for one another and things like that. But then in a short three days, he goes and seeks the local leaders of the Jews, and even though he calls them. Um, brothers, give me a second, didn't mean to do that. Even though he calls them brothers, right here in verse uh, 28, uh, verse 17 of Acts, this is not the Christian brother that we are familiar with. This, as we would, if we were to read the whole context of the chapter 28 in Acts, these are unbelieving brothers. These are just fellow ethnic brothers, fellow Israelites, fellow Jews, because he tries to reason with them concerning convincing them about who Messiah is. So let's read about this a little bit about how this is important for us. Regarding the important background to the book of Romans, some questions that often come to my mind are, and listen up, these are my own questions. If, according to popular Christian teaching today, the Gentile church at Rome represented a sizable and autonomous religious organization, separate and distinct from the Jewish synagogue this early on, made all the more obvious, I say, by the Jewish expulsion just mentioned, then why does Paul, per Acts 28, just reference, after briefly visiting some of the brother Christians on arrival to Rome, proceed to go to the mainstream Jewish community for ostensible legal counsel, right? I, you know, notice he asked them, or he starts to talk to them about the fact that he's being um, charged uh, and that he was a prisoner. You know, why would they care and what, you know, what's so important about all of that anyway? Uh, let's continue. These are my own thoughts. The Gentile church at Rome definitely had Messianic Jewish leadership in its ranks, right? See the end of Romans chapter 16. Couldn't they have better assisted in, in, in these matters as a brother Christian? I mean, why did he even seek out the unbelieving Jewish communities at all? To be sure, according to the popular reading of Galatians 1.13 and Philippians 3, 4, uh, 7 and 8, hadn't Paul already made a break with the Judaism by this time? Right? Um, if we click on the footnote to number 4, you'll see that I've quoted uh, Galatians 1.13 for us. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Uh, keep in mind that Galatians was written before Romans. So if Paul's confessing that he's a former Jew, but now he's a current Christian, according to Galatians, was written before Rome, then why would he seek out the Jewish community when he goes to Rome? Right? Doesn't make any sense to me. Likewise, in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The original Greek word has to word word rubbish there refers to poo-poo, <laughs> in order, or dung, right, uh, uh, in order that I might gain Christ. And so again, uh, the Philippians passage is uh, uh, popularly interpreted to mean that Paul abandoned Judaism and that all of it, the Jewish background was lost to him. He counted it all as loss. It was worth nothing to him anymore. This would include, of course, a Torah-observant lifestyle. This is according to the popular perspective, but I reject that reading of Paul. Let's keep reading my own commentary here. Uh, I don't know if I'll finish all this tonight. Let me see, because there's a lot of stuff here, and we may have to pick this up again. Um, maybe I'll work our way down to the conclusion, and we'll pick this up again next week uh, at the conclusion. So, Because uh, this is a lot of reading, more than I anticipated, but I, I definitely want to get through it. 
So we'll make this uh, second part next week. Wikipedia supplies a basic account of Emperor Claudius's order on their page to this topic, stating the following. And I know Wikipedia is not the most trustworthy resource, especially if you're talking about peer-reviewed circles. But when it comes to your average person who just needs access to something that's at least crowdsourced, meaning it's supplied by more than one person, so you're going to at least get a well-rounded perspective from many different backgrounds. And I appreciate that um, act that the perspective that Wikia, Wikipedia brings to the table, then I think the resource is trustworthy to, on that level. Again, it's not on the line on par with peer-reviewed journals and 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 periodicals and things like that. I remember in, in college that they our professors forbade us from using Wikipedia in our uh, in our um, uh, um, research papers. But I'm not in college anymore, and I think it, it's going to be helpful. Here's what Wikipedia has to say. Uh, they reference uh, references to an expulsion of Jews from Rome by the Roman Emperor Claudius, who was in office from AD 41 to 54, appear in the in the Acts of the Apostles at 18:2, and in the writings of Roman historians uh, Suetonius, which is circa 69 to um, circa, to AD 122, Cassius Dio, which is from AD 150 to 235, and 5th century Christian author Paulus Orosius. Scholars generally agree that these references refer to the same incident, which I think. Think is is good. I think that we have the Bible uh, author mentioning a historical account that is verified by non-biblical authorship. It shows that Luke was accurate, at least in uh, his uh, representation, even if he didn't uh, um, uh, relay the entire details uh, like many historians would do, um, like we're going to find out. So these are my own writings. I say, I have found that most Christian authors tend to prefer to play up the expulsion by Claudius, allowing it to define the audience of Romans in a, in a Gentile majority and Jewish minority sort of way. Remember that us versus them thing, then thing all over again, us versus them, resulting in the Gentiles turning out as the strong, i.e. the powerful, and the Jews turning out as the weak, i.e. those without power. Recall the uh, reference that I mentioned last week, a podcast by a Christian resource that feels that a, a, a good way to understand Paul's recipients in Romans 14 are the weak and the strong, the weak being the not powerful and the strong being the powerful, owing to the Greek words used in Romans 15 verses 1 and 2. Uh, where it talks about powerful and the not powerful, which I think is a good good resource. Go back and listen to last week's um, uh, study, uh, last week's teaching. I don't deny this basic premise about the, the powerful and the, and the and the not powerful, and the, the the majority and the minority. I don't deny this basic premise, so don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. And I say that it is historically accurate to describe the Gentile Christians at this point as the majority and the Jewish Christians as the minority, especially if the snapshot of individual uh, greetings provided by Paul at the end of Romans is any sort of what I call representative sampling of the groups he was writing to. So go back and read Romans 16, and you'll see that Paul personally greets like a, like somewhat like, what, 32 different people or something like that, and the majority of them are Gentiles, if we can follow the names and assume the naming to be indicative of their um, affiliation or ethnicity. However, in my own limited personal research, I have learned that it is possible that the edict did not result in as many Jews being expelled as previously thought. I'm not saying the expulsion didn't take place, but but how many people... Well, it, it was definitely issued, right? Luke records that Claudius issued the edict. Whether or not it was followed out, right, the way uh, Claudius issued it is a different story. 
So uh, the the edict did take place, um, but I, I, I tend to downplay it a little bit. And the, that those remaining Jewish communities actually very likely had an important impact on Paul's ideological framework uh, from which to construct his letter, assuming we are correct in that Paul wrote the letter shortly after the Jews began to return back to Rome, which itself was after the death of Claudius in AD 54, making the exile last a mere five, five short years or so. So historically, we're looking at, again, perhaps the exile or the edict was issued um, around, say, 49 AD, and then um, Claudius was uh, murdered in 54 AD, and then Paul wrote in 55 AD, and then in 60 AD, he actually visited Rome. So that's a very short time period, you know, from 49 all the way up to 60, in which for all of these events to take place of Jews moving in and out of Rome and then back to Rome and then Paul writing to them and the the letters circulating and then him traveling to Rome. You have to remember, you know, this is 2,000 years ago. It wasn't like they could just hop a flight and, 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 you know, get out of Rome or hop the next ship and get out of Rome that quickly uh, or anything like that. Uh, News traveling was slow, you know, there was no, you know, internet, there was no postal service the way we know it. There's no social media networking. So information travels slowly, people travel slowly, resources uh, were shared slowly, but yet all of this took place in a very short, like 10-year time frame. That's a lot of things happening in a very short time, so we have to kind of appreciate um, the impact and, and the scope of and the magnitude and what this would have done to the Roman communities and the way historians would have played this out. Indeed, even mainstream Christian authors will readily admit that Jewish and Gentile social tensions and struggles represent some of the foremost concerns to our famous apostle to the Gentiles. And let me see how much farther this goes. Um, I'm not going to even be able to make it to the conclusions. We're going to pick this up uh, uh, next week because I'm going a lot longer. I'm eating into my uh, uh, Trinity study time at this point in my study. So let's stop right here. Um, we'll look at pick Wikipedia again. We'll pick this up now, next week. And we're, what we're doing is we're, we're working through some historical notes, some resources that I've been able to look at. I'm not – I, I want to kind of give you the, kind of an overview conclusion – to what we've been looking at in case you aren't able to make it next week or um, you're, you're lost in, the, in all the resources. I'm not saying that the Gentile Christian communities in Paul's days didn't have their own um, uh, worldview to contend with and their own important issues to wrestle with independent of the Jewish synagogues. I'm not saying that there wasn't some measure of independence on their part. Surely they were operating with this idea that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and of the world, and therefore that set them over and against your average um, nationalistic or um, uh, uh, um, unbelieving Jewish person in Paul's day, right? There was some some friction there, obviously created by a messianic belief of, of who Jesus was. But what I'm trying to say is that um, there was this this a uh, very big thing that happened in, in around, right around the time that Paul's writing to Romans, which was the expulsion, the edict of Claudius. And how does that bear relevance to our historical appreciation of, of how many Jews were present there and why does it matter? And so what I'm trying to convey uh, as I'm closing this part of my commentary down is that I believe that um, yes, the edict took place. Yes, it, 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 it happened. Uh, but uh, there are some... There's some indications that perhaps not all the Jews made it out, or they didn't leave like they're told to, or perhaps maybe when we say all the Jews, we're talking about all the ones that were connected to maybe a certain riotous group, 
like Luke records, he says all the Jews, but what does he mean by all? You know, that's a little bit ambiguous. He could be meaning all the ones of a certain um, uh, segment uh, or something like that. Even though he says all Rome, you know, is that a bit of a hyperbole? He doesn't give any details surrounding the expulsion, uh, and and why wouldn't other historians have recorded the event uh, if it was so? You know, we're talking about possibly twenty thousand to. 50,000 uh, Jewish Roman citizens or something to that effect being told to leave. I mean, that would have made a pretty big impact, even though Rome had like a you know, million or more people. We're still talking about a sizable um, sociological impact to um, uh, the group there. So we'll pick this up again next week. We'll continue reading down through this and working our way through this. And, and then um, if we have to make this into part three, even uh, the week after that, we'll do. I'm not in any particular rush, so I hope you're not as well. So that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, um, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. And we'll pick up the other resources next week. Let's turn now to... Um, let me see what resource I want to use. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. This part won't take as long tonight because there's only three short verses and they're all very easy to explain. And um, what we're going to be dealing with, we talked last week about how um, that um, God the Father is all-knowing in 1 John, God the Son is all-knowing in John, and God the Holy Spirit is all-knowing in 1 Corinthians. Go back and listen to last week's teaching. Let's talk this week about how that God the Father sanctifies us as believers in 1 Thessalonians, God the Son sanctifies us in Hebrews, and God the Holy Spirit sanctifies us in 1 Peter. This will be, like I said, a very short, quick, to-the-point study. It doesn't take a lot of... Um, uh, brain work to figure out what these verses are trying to convey. So let's turn to the very first passage. First Thessalonians 5.23, right here in ESV reads, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have it. God, it doesn't say the Father, but that's the context of the way God is normally used in the Apostolic Scriptures. At this point in time in history, God was synonymous with Father. In other words, it was unnatural for anyone to think that when the writers of the Apostolic Scriptures wrote the word God, right, the Greek word is theos, that perhaps they were referring to either the Son or the Holy Spirit. They are more naturally referring to um, Father. So we can just supply a word that's not really there in the Greek. Now, may God the Father, right, the uh, God of peace himself sanctify you. All right, so what's Paul saying? God the Father sanctifies us. He's the one that makes us holy, this Greek word uh, hagiasai, which is rooted in the word hagias, right, for holy or holiness and things like that. He's the one that makes us holy. When we talk about being sanctified, as I understand it, there's at least two aspects to being sanctified. There's being set apart from something. We're talking about being dedicated. And then there's the aspect of being set apart unto something. So in terms of believers in Messiah, God sets us apart from the world, he sanctifies us, and he sets us apart unto himself. He sanctifies us unto himself. And of course, as we're fond of noting, this sanctification process has aspects of being both um, one time as well as ongoing, right? In the sense that when we make a profession of Christ being Messiah, we become sanctified unto God at the very moment set apart, but the process of sanctification could be uh, uh, 
described as an ongoing process that occupies the rest of our lives uh, from the moment that we make our decision about Yeshua as Messiah. Uh, so typically, theologians uh, talk about it in terms of justification as compared to sanctification. Justification being the salvation experience, sanctification being the ongoing, life-changing uh, choices that we make as we walk out who we are in Messiah. So, make sense? All right, not terribly difficult to follow along with. Let's go to the next passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 right here, reads, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, by context, we have to go back up a few verses to figure out who the he is that we're referring to, because it simply says, he who sanctifies and he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Well, who is he talking to? If we go back up just a little earlier... Uh, looking at verse 9, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might, might taste death for everyone. And then in verse 10, it says, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be uh, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And that's where we pick up verse 11 for he who sanctifies. So who's the he who sanctifies us? Verse 9 tells us in no un- unambiguous terms, it's Jesus. Well, this is the son. Well, wait a minute. If Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that God sanctifies us, But the writer to the book of Hebrews tells us in his letter that the Son, Jesus, sanctifies us. Then who's the one who sanctifies us? Well, you're beginning to get the picture, right? This is the language of the Bible that leads us to the best practices conclusion that we're dealing with one God who is nevertheless complex complex in his nature and in his uh, triunity, in his in his dealings with humankind. He is one God, he's one what, he's one being, but he's made up of three persons who are independent to the degree that they have separate and unique personalities and dealings with the um, salvation history of mankind itself. Remember, it's not God the Father who hung on the cross. It's not the Holy Spirit that had nails put through his hands and feet. Right? It wasn't a ghost up there on the cross. So we have to understand the nature of the one God and his interacting with humans as the persons of this one God. One God, three persons. Let's turn to the next passage. By the way, um, uh, just to make sure that we're looking at the same word sanctifies, in the English sanctified, again, we he- see here in the Greek, hagiadzon is rooted in the same Greek word that we saw earlier. In fact, if I hover my mouse over it, it's Strong's number 37 verses in First um, Thessalonians. If I hover my mouse over it, sure enough, Strong's number 37. So, dealing with the same Greek word, it's not like Paul switched um, terminology underneath us and our English may not reflect it like happens from time to time. Right, unless you're not aware of it. But in this case, again, same Greek word. Now, it's not the same writer. I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but it doesn't matter, really. We're looking at the same terminology that's used um, by the um, uh, writers. And in fact, it's used twice there. Uh, Hagiadzamenoi. Hagiadzamenoi. Same uh, root word, Hagiadzon and Hagiadzamenoi. All right, uh, and then the last passage that we're going to look at briefly for our Trinity study here is First Peter chapter one verse uh, two. But we'll start in verse one to catch the context. Uh, Peter says, "Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect 
exiles of the dis- of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and ben- uh, Bithynia, and Bithynia. And then in verse uh, two, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is one of these triadic passages where you have all three persons mentioned. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we have Peter writing this time and uh, he uses the same uh, uh, um, a similar Greek construction here. Uh, hagiasmo this Greek word right there. Uh, Hagiasmo is rooted in the same Greek word. We can see it's Strong's number 38, which if you were following along, Strong's number 37 was the other previous words, which tells you that in your lexicon, this is the very next entry, 37, 38, meaning it's rooted in the same Greek word that we used earlier. Sanctify, right? Set apart, be made holy. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but notice that Peter says it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification of the Spirit. Right, so it's the spirit who um, um, uh, causes this sanctification to come to pass in Peter's writing here, and yet Paul wrote earlier that it's God who sanctifies, and the writer to the book of Hebrews wrote earlier that it's the Son Jesus who sanctifies us. Right, um, so how are we to interact with this language? Well, it's exactly the way I've been uh, speaking all along. When you're forming your theology about the Trinity and who you think God is and what the, his nature is, right? This is an ontological discussion. The best practices way to interact with um, the biblical data is to allow all of it to speak to the, um, the conclusions that you're coming to. Don't cherry pick your resources and leave out one book and one passage because it disagrees with your quote unquote theology. That's a bad way to interpret your Bible. What you want to do is you want to read something in one passage and then you read something in another resource, reference, maybe another book, maybe another chapter, maybe another author. But even if it seems to contradict, you have to remember that the best way to read the Bible and to interpret it is to come to the hermeneutic conclusion beforehand that the authorship of the Bible can't contradict one another in any given spot. Now, we're not talking about typos, scribal errors, um, um, uh, uh, what we call um, variants in manuscript copies and things like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the overall general um, historical and and, uh, reliable authorship that the Holy Spirit himself um, preserved when the um, the Bible was canonized and received as uh, inspired text. So to that degree, God is not the author of confusing himself with himself. He's not going to tell one um, writer in one book, hey, I'm God and there is no other God and I'm one being and I'm not made up of any other um, parts that anyone can uh, identify. And then he's not, he's not going to come along a couple hundred years or a thousand years later and tell another author in the same book, his same autograph, Oh, by the way, um, I'm made up of all these different parts to the um, correction of what I previously told everyone else, right? Um, He's not going to correct himself in that way. Uh, Likewise, he's not going to come along theologically and say, hey, here's what I consider right and wrong and tell one group of people, you better follow this uh, standard of living. And then he's not going to come along and tell another group of people, oh, by the way, this is my standard of living, right? Forget about that previous standard. I've changed my mind of what's right and wrong, what's what's sin and what's holy, what's holiness and what's sin. Let's do things a little bit differently, right? It's not a sin for you. It was a sin for them, but it's not a sin for you. You know, that's generally a bad way to interpret your Bible. So 
Are you guys getting the point so far? So as we continue to work through this uh, list, and we're just going to go through these, like I said, just uh, um, label by label, we're going to follow the same hermeneutic principle that the um, uh, the best way to interact with God is to let him speak for himself. As as mysterious as that sounds to us, as uh, ambiguous as, 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 that, as that impacts us from time to time, as, as challenging as that is to us as, as uh, analytic theologians like Dr. Dale Tuggy, where uh, you read something in one passage and read something in another passage, and you're, you think that you have to choose between one passage versus the other or force everything into one um, constructive model that fits your analytic model uh, as to who God is. So um, I think that'll be enough for this particular uh, part of my study tonight. Let's turn now to the, um, what are we going to look at next? The, uh, the liturgy. Let's turn to the liturgy briefly. As I mentioned, we won't take too long. We're working our way down through uh, Genesis 17 passage. I'm just reading a few pa- verses at a time and bouncing this off of, um, I say Romans 14, but I think this really should be Galatians. Uh, like I mentioned, yeah, let me turn to Galatians. I don't want Romans 14 for my uh, apostolic scripture selection. Give me one second. I should have had Galatians pulled up earlier. Alrighty. So in Galatians 7, I'm sorry, in Genesis 17, uh, God tells Abraham about the covenant known as uh, circumcision. And we read uh, verse 9 and um, 10 last week. So we'll just read the next two verses now. Uh, In verse 11, right here on my screen, like you can see, uh, God says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then verse 12, he says, He who, I'm sorry, I have to read uh, both of them since there's a comma in the English. Verse 12 says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And then verse 13, both he who is born in your household, in your house, and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. And I may as well read verse 14 since that's the end. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So 11 through 14 tonight. And the things that that are um, of significance to me is that this is a covenant that is made with Abraham throughout his generations right there. And it is an everlasting covenant in verse uh, 13. So um, this speaks profoundly to me of the um, the lasting value of this particular covenant that God made with Abraham. Unless God has gone back on his word and lied to Abraham, God knowing the future from the past, knowing in advance that he's going to cancel this particular covenant when he sends his son into the world and dies on the cross, knowing that he's going to bring Judaism to an end and bring the law to an end and bring circumcision to an end, physical circumcision that is, and, and, and swap it out with, with the heart circumcision or something like that. Um, Unless God was deceiving Abraham, uh, then we should be taking uh, what God said to Abraham at face value. Let's look at the Hebrew real quick, starting over here on the right side of the page. Starting at verse 11, um, uh, Moshe writes, Un maltem et basar arlatchem vahayal brit beni uvenechem. Verse 12 says, Uven shmonat yamim yimolachem kol zakhar ladorotechem. Ya lead bait umichnat kesef mikol ben nechor nechor asher lo mizarachahu. Verse thirteen says himol yimol ya lead beitcha 
מקנת כספך והייתה בריתי בבשרכם לברית עולם. And verse 14 says, וערל זכור אשר לא ימול את בשר ערלתכו ונכרתה הנפש ההיא מימיה את And that'll do it for the Hebrew section. Bouncing off of what we just read in the book of Galatians about the eternality of the uh, Abrahamic covenant and its sign of physical circumcision, we now are faced with what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, which seems to contradict on a surface level about circumcision. Galatians chapter 5, we read 1 and 2 and 3 last week. Um... Uh, and he, it, where he talks about that uh, circumcision will be of no advantage to you. So he seems to be downplaying circumcision in verse 2. Uh, let's pick up the reading in verse 4. I'll read 4, 5, and uh, uh, 6 tonight. Uh, verse 4 says, you, were, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Um, verse 5 says, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And verse 6 verse six says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Right? So is Paul downplaying physical circumcision? Is he saying that it's of no value? Is he um, uprooting it, saying that we don't need to do it anymore, and that if you try to become circumcision, that you're falling away from grace, if you're trying to be justified by being circumcision, um, things like that. Uh, we could talk about this passage at a different time. I don't want to get into it for my liturgy, and I do go into this at length in my Romans. I'm sorry, my Galatians commentary. So you can catch those resources there on my website at tatesitor.com. My exegete Galatians commentary is recommended. Let's read the Greek uh, real quick of four, five, and six over on uh, this side of the page. Uh, the Greek says, "Katergetha apokristu hoitinis in namo dekaius the tes." Charitas exapesate. Verse 5 says, Hemes garpnumati epistios elpida decaiosunes apec decametha. And verse 6 says, In gar Christo Yesu ute peratame tiescue ute acrobustia ala pistis diagapes in ergumene. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the short little video for tonight. Uh, this is on uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30, entitled, The Promises of God. And after the video, we'll dismiss in prayer. Okay? You guys ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. In the last video, we looked at this wonderful promise verse from Genesis 18:19. For I've made myself known to him so that he will give orders to his children and to his household after him to keep the way of Adonai and to do what is right and just so that Adonai may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. This is a fantastic statement from the mouth of the one who sees every human possibility. Would that we might have Hashem pronounce this blessing over our families today. What must we do? We must, like faithful Abraham, trust in the Lord against all unbelievable odds to perform in our lives the promise that he has given us through our Messiah. And what is that promise? Furthermore, 
We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called in accordance with His purpose, because those whom He knew in advance, He also determined in advance, would be conformed to the pattern of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He thus determined in advance, He also called. And those whom He called, He also caused to be considered righteous. And those whom He caused to be considered righteous, He also glorified. We usually stop the first verse, but reading further informs us of our true identity in Messiah, righteous heirs according to trusting faithfulness, causing us to be called, as faithful Avraham was called, righteous. And that'll do it for the short little video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students. I pray that you'll continue to keep me accountable um, to a more righteous standard uh, than the world around me, than the um, standard that um, even my closest friends and family members might sometimes seem to offer lord the standard of righteousness that i need to hold to and that indeed all of us as believers need to stand hold to is that which is already provided for us in the pages of your word from beginning to end that's the standard that we need to uh, pattern our lives after so holy spirit we ask that you will empower us to um, conform to that standard and begin to walk in that way, in that manner of life, allowing the truths of the word to wash over us and to wash through us and to shape our way of thinking, our worldview, our perspective, our our um, ideology, the word I'm picking on tonight, to allow God's word to be the final authority on these particular matters in our lives. We know, Lord, that um, we can't go wrong if we do things the way that you are telling us to do. Help us to continue to work these things out within our respective communities because we don't have all the answers. And that's why you've supplied us with pastors and preachers and teachers and prophets and evangelists and the various uh, giftings and and the various parts of the body that come together to help us um, strengthen the body and to fit together. Thank you for calling us and drawing us together and strengthening us. Thank you for your continued protection during this this very uh, terrifying pandemic that's sweeping the world. Continue to raise us up as witnesses. Help us to be salt. Help us to be light in very dark places. Help us to continue to rely on you and to profess your name. Um, Bring us back together next week, Lord willing, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. 
Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>